Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. Hey guys, welcome back to Storytime Podcast. I am your host, Haley Lira, and today I have found the Swedish Romeo and Juliet, but with a much darker ending. Before I get started, I just want to say thank you so much for tuning into Storytime Podcast. I love doing this. It's like my favorite hobby. And don't forget that you can always go to Storytime Slayer on Facebook, which is where I post all the content that goes with these stories for my real crime fanatics. Also, don't forget to leave me a five star or glowing review on Apple Podcasts and feel free to email me at storytimepods at gmail.com or send me a message on Storytime Slayer on Facebook. I do have an Instagram at story underscore time underscore slayer, but I'm really bad about being on Instagram. I don't know why. Okay, let's get started. So I will give you some backstory on the victim, and then I will go into his disappearance and how the case was solved. It's really wild how it was solved, just so dumb. And it all took place in Sweden, which has very interesting laws. Let's go. So Gordon Lundblad was a seemingly healthy and wealthy man that simply vanished from his home in the countryside of Sweden in Nora Florosa. He was 62, a farmer who'd inherited a tobacco pipe company, farm, and significant amount of land. This was essentially generational wealth that he had accumulated from his family passed down to him. And it was heavily disputed how his grandfather or father actually acquired all of this farmland and forestry. There had been some argument that maybe Gordon's father did something that cut a bunch of people in their family out of ownership when this was passed down. And also, there was a never-ending feud with the neighboring farmers known as the Thornblad family. So, okay, okay, here's what happened. In the 1950s, there was a Swedish national land survey done, and they missed a parcel of land that was like three to four football fields big. Uh, this is all according to the book, The Dark Heart, A Story of Greed, Murder, and an Unlikely Investigator. Okay, so both the Lundblads and the Thornblads have claimed to this four football field plot of land, and what they had to do was they had to split it in half, which infuriated the Thornblads, um, because apparently there was some type of verbal contract between Gordon's great-grandfather and somebody in the Thornblad family that they would get to have all of the land for a lot of, like, shit that they did for the Lundblads. But that never came to fruition, and it infuriated the Thornblads that they only got half of the land. So... Honestly, Gordon was only a child at the time, like 9 or 10, so this didn't even have anything to do with him. But the hatred between the neighboring farm families continued forever, and it's a very important part of this case. So now Gordon's 62. He's got the pipe manufacturing business, the land, which he had lumber work also, land contracts. He was a landlord. He had stocks and investments. Shit is happening, right? He's very busy. Plus, Gordon was no slumlord, nor was he uninvolved in his business dealings. He handled his shit himself. He didn't miss meetings or ever flake out. Although he was financially well off, he was not flashy. He was not braggy. He, most of his life, didn't have a fancy car or a home. He actually had like a clunker of a car in an old farmhouse. And a lot of his contracts were verbal. He seemed very chill. 
He also worked on his farm, in his forest, and for the pipe company, hands-on in there regularly. He did, however, have his daughter, Sarah, as his right hand. They worked together every day, day in, day out, and she was like a lifelong intern for him. He'd already placed a significant amount of property and accounts into her name, and she was pretty much going to inherit the family business dealings and have to continue the family legacy. However, we will circle back to that. So more about Gordon. Gordon had two daughters. He had his oldest daughter, Sarah, and younger daughter, Maria. I want to say off the top of my head that Sarah was 24 when Gordon disappeared, and Maria had just turned 18. Sarah's mom had been a tenant of Gordon's parents when they met. She did not have much involvement, though, with Sarah. So I guess within like a year of them getting together, they had Sarah and were already broken up. Um, she became really depressed, the mom, and I think she was a substance abuser of some sort, but I don't know if it was drugs, alcohol, or what. This isn't really relevant, but I thought it was kind of funny how he met Maria's mom next. It was in the 90s, and he put an ad in a Russian magazine. At first, I was like, that is so weird, until I realized it's the 90s, like that's how people met. And she said it didn't work out in the long run because Gordon's parents were alive. They ran their family like a patriarch, even into adulthood. Like at the age of 40, supposedly Gordon's mom was still in charge of his money. And he hardly got any to spend. Everything the family was about was save and make more, save and make more. They had gotten married in 1993 and divorced in 2001. Now, Gordon got custody of both of his children which later they did live with their mom for different periods of time and they did have a relationship but they never got any of his family's money and he did have primary custody a majority of the girl's life if I'm understanding correctly he has said to not have had much of a social life Um, He only had one friend, and Gordon was described as a bit withdrawn to himself. Very nice man, very generous to his family, but really lonely. When Gordon disappeared, he was worth about six million U.S. dollars, which is 50 million kronor, and that is the currency in Sweden, so you're going to hear me reference that a lot. Sarah, Gordon, and Maria are said to have had a good dynamic. He was very close to both his daughters. Even when Sarah first went to college, she'd come visit her dad and sister every holiday and every other weekend, and it was 250-mile drive. Like I said before, aside from when she was in college, Sarah did everything with her dad and was in line to learn and take over the family legacy and business dealings. But then a boy came along. A boy ruined it all. Um, She started dating the neighbor boy, Martin. And that is when a wedge grew between them. See, Martin, for one, he was a loser. He was part of the Thornblad family. And that is the family that they had bad blood between them because of the land, that parcel of land. They were nemesis, much like Romeo and Juliet's family. Gordon did not take the relationship lightly. He felt utterly betrayed by his daughter. Um, He complained all the time about it. For one, I don't think that... He thought Martin was good enough for Sarah. Aside from the land situation with the family, they were drowning in debt. And Gordon was convinced that he was with Sarah and hoped for her family's money and access to their land and equipment. 
Sari was three years older than Martin also. They began dating when he was 18 and she was 21 in 2009. On top of being a gold digger, Martin was just lame. He was arrogant, a bragger, very chauvinistic, not an honest, noble, or polished person at all. Sarah is said to be plain, um, not overly friendly like her father, kind of stuck to herself, mousy, and in some accounts I've heard her described as unattractive, which, yikes. So... Gordon went from having a really good relationship with Sarah to constantly fighting and bickering. He bitched to everybody about her dating Martin and that he knows Martin's just trying to get his paws on their money and property because his family was drowning in debt. Gordon was a broken record and he was not casual about his disdain and suspicion regarding Martin either. He tried everything to keep Sarah from him. Hell, he even bribed her with a very, very expensive plot of land. But when nothing worked, um, all he could think of to do was to start taking shit out of Sarah's name. Apparently, he thought if he took away the assets, Martin would jump ship. So in October 2011 is when he first started dropping things. Like he dropped her as the heir to some of their shit he had divided. And he instead said, hey, you know, Marie is about to be 18 and I am getting my will changed to split everything evenly between you guys. And you know what? It wasn't long after that he disappeared. So all in all, though, he did get like $1.3 million worth of shit taken out of Sarah's name before he went missing. Now, let's address it. Maybe Martin just loved Sarah. And I'm sure he did. But it didn't help that in 2012, Martin tried to buy the plot of land that the Thornblads and the Lundblads had fought over generations before. It was currently being leased at the time to somebody and Martin offered him double the money. And Gordon was like, oh my God, this is the last straw. He was pissed. And on top of that, after this happened, Sarah moved in with Martin on the Thordblad farm. So things had gotten very muddled and tense between Sarah and her father. Around 2012, though, he finally was showing some indifference to the relationship between Sarah and Martin. Now, at this point, they'd been together since 2009, so three years, and he was just, he wasn't approving. He wouldn't let Martin move in. He wouldn't let Sarah have his apartment in town because he knew that she would want Martin to move in with her. Like, he was not approving of the relationship, but he was starting to just deal with it. He was willing to... Just let it be. But him and Sarah's relationship never improved. They continued to bicker constantly. According to Sarah, the last argument they'd had was August 29th. She'd stormed off from the house, slamming the door and going to the Thornblad farm next door. She said her dad was on the couch watching TV at the time on Stall Farm the last time she saw him. Now their other daughter, Maria, she spoke to her dad that day too, August 29th. She had been staying at her mom's house, so it was on the phone, but she talked to him for about 30 minutes and they got off at exactly 9.44 p.m. She said she didn't really call hearing about a fight or anything out of the ordinary when she spoke to her father. Everything seemed to be normal and on the up and up with their conversation. That was the last time anybody would ever talk to Gordon. So that took place on August 29th. And here's the weird thing. Not only did Gordon vanish he had just bought his first big luxury purchase. It was a brand new car, a Mercedes, and he didn't even take that with him. It was found outside of his apartment that he had in town. 
He was also supposed to do a land contract for a farmer tenant the next day, which is a really big deal. Um, But he just left that hanging, which was so out of the ordinary for him. People were extremely worried. September 10th, Sarah filed a missing person report. And I personally think this is just slightly too long to wait to file a report. Of course, this was treated as a missing persons case at first and was of a lower priority than, say, a murder would be. However, all of that would change in October when Maria called the police to point the finger at her sister, Sarah, and the disappearance of her father, Gordon. This made the department prioritize the case. The preliminary investigation was labeled as a manslaughter at the time being, and it began November 2012. They immediately started interviewing people and took search dogs to the Lundblad properties, their vehicles, and the farm. By the way, his farm was called Stall Farm. They also got cell phone records from Gordon, Sarah, and Martin. They weren't screening their calls yet. They were just seeing who called and what time you could see the phone locations and where they were at. Sarah told police that she'd been calling and driving around town trying to find her father, but when they got those call logs to analyze, Sarah had only called her dad 11 times within 72 days. Even his friend called him like 111 times. She left no voicemails, no text messages, and they could tell by looking at her location that she was not driving around looking for Gordon like she claimed she was. By the way, Gordon didn't do Facebook or computer stuff at all, so the only way to reach him is by phone. That wasn't the only suspicious thing that Sarah and Martin did. Um, They moved into Gordon's apartment and began renovating it, which everyone said Gordon would have never approved of that. For one, he wouldn't approve of the living situation, and for two, they didn't think he would approve of a damn remodel. By the way, the remodeling they did two months after he disappeared, okay, it was the room that Gordon used as his bedroom. It happened to be a dining room right off of the kitchen, but Gordon used it as a bedroom, and literally within two months of him disappearing, they took all his stuff out of it, emptied his closet, got rid of his bed, changed the wallpaper, repainted anything that needed, completely pulled out and replaced the linoleum. I mean, that's a lot to do. It's as if they thought he wasn't coming back. Next, they actually completely moved into his home on Stall Farm, which everyone was like, dude, there's no way Gordon would be okay with Martin living with Sarah at his fucking house. Gordon was a hoarder and Sarah and Martin were seen burning his belongings in the woods, which burning trash and unwanted things isn't really uncommon in the countryside, but it is really suspicious that it's been months since he disappeared and they're getting rid of all his stuff as if he doesn't, he's not going to have anything to say about it when he comes back. Missing persons got involved in the search for Gordon and you know what? They are going to be the people responsible for cracking this case. Missing persons and police were hot to search the stall farms first, right? They even used search dogs. Missing persons and the police questioned Sarah, neighbors, town people, people who dealt with Gordon and Martin. Everyone pointed the finger at Sarah and Martin, especially since Sarah didn't really seem to care about her father disappearing. They were remodeling, throwing things away even, and she was literally saying she wanted to put the whole thing behind her. Like, she wasn't concerned at all 
Searchers were really hopeful that the dogs would hit on the remodeled room somewhere or somewhere on that property, but the dogs didn't hit on anything. As if Sarah wasn't looking suspicious enough, she started letting the Thornblads, people that her father hated, use his equipment and other property. This was immediately noted as a big red flag, and the guardian over Gordon's estate during his disappearance put an immediate stop to it. See, because Gordon took everything out of Sarah's name, whenever he disappeared, a third party was placed over his estate to keep things just as he would, and Sarah hated that. Up until now, Martin and his father did not know that Gordon had removed things from Sarah's name, and she was now broke as a joke with her father gone. Before Gordon disappeared, though, through investigators, she'd been transferring money to Martin's dad. We're talking in six months, she'd given Martin's dad almost half a million in Kronor, which is equivalent to $60,000. Wow. Then... In a sawmill contract with Gordon, they were completely unaware that Sarah was taken off as partial owner as their previous contract she was. In Gordon's absence, they paid Sarah what they owed to him, and it was 1.5 million kronor, which is 180,000 United States dollars. In the absence of her father, she was transferring gobs of money to Martin's dad, who her dad hated. And it seems unlikely that she would do this if she thought her dad was coming back. So with all this information, November 17, 2012, Martin and Sarah were officially deemed murder suspects. They weren't told this, of course, when they were first brought in for questioning. And Sarah's story was that she didn't know where her dad was. He had given her his blessing for her relationship with Martin before he disappeared. And she says that he probably left to force her to take more responsibility. Her and her dad had a fight. She left the house and she never saw him again. And that's all she knows. She is also insistent that she wants to put all this in her rear view mirror and move on. Then, December 14th, 2012, another crime took place in Sweden that totally overshadowed Gordon's, and they had to pull their resources off of his investigation. So it kind of just was on pause. In the meantime, Sarah and Martin's relationship began to change. They had a child named Vince in 2013, and Martin tried to, like, be the man in charge now. He wanted Sarah to be a homemaker, and, you know, she just wasn't happy anymore. He wasn't a great co-parent. He wouldn't change diapers, cook, clean, um, really any of the undesirable parenting duties. Ugh, I hate men like that. I knew a girl whose husband would never change a diaper, and they had, like, fucking six kids That's just crazy. I just say because they had their kids back to back. So for years, they've had a kid in diapers. And this dude does not change diapers. She even told me, she's like, no, he doesn't change diapers. And then she told me also that he didn't watch the kids. He couldn't handle watching the kids. Anyway, okay, okay. So he, Martin, wanted Sarah to be a homemaker. And she just wasn't down with that. Also, several times between 2013 and 2014, Sarah almost left Martin. He was borderline emotionally controlling because he had these really big outbursts and was extremely moody. So you had to like tiptoe around him to keep him from getting upset. Sarah also started secretly having a mild affair with a tenant in the apartments that Gordon owned. 
And I don't think Martin was any the wiser about the affair. It was just another reason that Sarah was kind of done with Martin. However, both couples still maintained years later that they had no part in Gordon's disappearance and their life went on, but it was unraveling. The cracks were showing. So in late 2013, um, missing persons decided they were going to pick back up on the Gordon disappearance case. And I don't know how. I think they just routinely check on cold cases and recognize the need for this case to be looked at again. So they decided, okay, we got to make some phone calls. The first call was to Gordon's daughter, Sarah, and it didn't go really well. Like she flat out told them that she didn't want to talk to them. She wanted to put her dad's disappearance behind her. Move on. Got off the phone. Then they spoke to Maria and she was quite opposite of Sarah. She didn't have any new information, but she was very eager to hear from them or police and had been waiting for information on her father. So she was very happy that missing persons was taking a look at her dad's case. Initially, missing persons was on this project solo. The police just did not have the dedicated manpower for this case until close to March 2014. But honestly, nothing changed then for them. Everyone thought the same thing still. Sarah and Martin killed and disposed of Gordon's body, but nobody could really prove it. Several searches were conducted throughout those two years, but there was absolutely no hit from the dogs. It was crazy. May 17th, they decided to do another search with the dogs and found nothing. But then May 18th, they got a tip to go check out this red barn or house on a plot of land next to a pond and so they go out there and they search the area and the dogs did react to a spot by a large body of water but when missing persons contacted the police and they sectioned off the area and drained it there was no body however there were several drainage pipes that led to this pond and they believe that his body must have been buried by a drainage pipe somewhere that connected to the route and it was carrying his scent. Oh, science is weird. But I just don't think that they had the resources to follow all the drainage systems. I don't quite know what that would have entailed. So they're back to square one. Now there's this lady, our hero. Her name is Teresa. And she was a lead searcher for the missing persons team looking for Gordon. She wasn't an officer of the law. She wasn't an investigator in any capacity, okay? She was just a search and rescue volunteer. And at the end of the search on the 18th, I think, her and her team were talking. And Sarah and Martin were like nearby enough to see them. So they actually approached Teresa and her people. And they engaged in casual conversation. So Teresa kind of took to siding with Martin and Sarah. Sarah didn't really partake in the conversation, but Martin was pretty talkative. And Teresa said that they, she was just acted like she was very understanding and compassionate towards Martin. So sometime later, Teresa Tang, a search volunteer and some other searchers saw Martin again. And this was, this had to have been like within weeks of seeing him the first time. And he engaged in like really casual conversation, but seemed extremely nervous. Teresa lied and said something to the effect that like, um, hey, you know, the Swedish law is going to actually lengthen the amount of time it takes a person to be able to file a missing person as a declared death to like 15 years. 
And apparently it worked. Like it shook Martin up. He got riled and he started asking her really odd questions. Now remember, she is a fucking search missing person volunteer. Okay. The questions that he was asking her were um, if a shotgun shell could be traced back to a gun, how long till something like a fingerprint could wear off of a body, just really weird questions like that. And, you know, although she was super suspicious, Teresa played the part of a very supportive person to Martin. Like she answered his questions as if no worries. Oh, they probably couldn't trace it back because of the level of decay you know things like that and martin was stupid enough to get played by this missing person search coordinator okay one night in june at 11 p.m martin actually texted the search and rescue woman and said that he wanted to talk to her but he didn't want anybody to know um it was something that she had to keep confidential all right so let's hold that thought A little bit before this, Saturday, June 11th, Sarah had loaded her horses into her horse trailer, buckled her baby in her car, and left Martin, this time for good. And Martin realized it. He tried to go meet Sarah and reconcile for like three days, and and he realized it was over. It was done. Sarah was completely done with him. So nearly midnight the following Tuesday of Sarah leaving him, he texts this Teresa lady. All right. Martin was attracted to her and he was saying that he needed to talk to somebody and that she seemed really nice and understanding, but he didn't know if he could trust her, blah, 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 blah. They're, they're, they're texting like back and forth, back and forth. Um, and they're flirting hardcore. And she's also talking to the missing persons team. And she's like, yeah, I'm going to keep playing the game to see if he'll tell me where Gordon is or any information. So she lied and told him that she was also getting a divorce to kind of put them at a level playing field and engaged in this flirty chit chat all night. But she could tell that he wasn't going to be completely forthcoming unless she met with him in person. Uh, So she makes a call to the detective on Gordon's case And leaves him a message. He said that he was going to call her back that night, but he never did. And she's like, you know what? Fuck it. I didn't hear from the detective. I'm going to go ahead and make a plan and meet with Martin. So she borrowed her colleague from the missing persons place she worked. She borrowed his home. It seemed like it would be safer for her to do that rather than be at her own house. Um, I don't know why. I just assume that's why. So she said that Martin came a little bit earlier than he was supposed to. And they did this like subtle back and forth, a little bit flirty, just getting kind of comfortable chit chat until they finally got to the point of what Martin had to get off his chest. And it, it literally just came out like word vomit. She said like, he just, he just let it out. He said that Sarah had originally wanted to kill her dad with forestry equipment and to make it look like an accident. But she couldn't bring herself to do it. So instead they planned for Martin to shoot Gordon. Martin thought it was best to shoot him in the early morning. So that way when they disposed of his body it would look like they were just doing regular farm work. It was fully planned to the point that they had the grave dug the day before. Martin who was no weapon expert wasn't even sure what ammo he needed. So he loaded some threes and some fives into his father's shotgun. That's what he said. That morning, he called Sarah at 630, which the phone records support. 
she let him into the house and he walked up to Gordon, who was laying down facing the wall, asleep. Martin's gun was aimed and when he was about five feet away, Gordon rolled over to look up at him and almost was able to holler out until Martin shot him. They had to wrap him in a tarp and drag him down the stairs to the basement into the pickup truck. They buried him up and cleaned the entire room by 2 p.m. Now remember, this room was cleaned so thoroughly that canines could not detect blood or a dead body and they had no reaction to the home whatsoever. See, what they did was they scrubbed and scrubbed with industrial cleaner. They re-wallpapered and even pulled out and replaced the vinyl floor, sanding down any spots of blood. He got rid of the shotgun shells by throwing them into a stream, smashed Gordon's cell phone and put it into a manure pile, burned the passport somewhere on his father's property, and burned a lot of Gordon's possessions and furniture back in the woods of his property, which likely could have had blood splatter and evidence. They disassembled the shotgun and completely cleaned it with actual chemical cleaning solutions and left it out to dry so it rusted. The basement where he drugged Gordon had a drain and that is where they completely rinsed it and then cleaned it all out. When he got done telling her this awful story, she asked him where the body was, put her phone on record, and he told her. Of course, he didn't know he was being recorded and he genuinely thought she wouldn't tell anybody. So as soon as she gathered everything that she wanted to know, she was really afraid to be alone with him. So she's like, wow, oh my gosh, I'm famished. We need to go get something to eat. That was a lot. So they get in the car and she said Martin was like really upbeat as if they were new partners in crime. So they go get something to eat and then she like claims, oh, so-and-so is about to be back and I need to make this cake and blah, blah. You're going to have to go before they come, before they get back here. And she runs him off and immediately she contacted the lead investigator to tell what happened. It was June 19th and he immediately brought in Martin for questioning. Martin was cool as a cucumber because he'd been interviewed before a couple times by police and he maintained the same story and he could do it again. He was none the wiser that Teresa turned him in. They tried to tell him that she told them everything and he still was convinced that somebody else must have told them and just said Teresa told him. Anyway. Swedish law lesson. So the Swedish law says that you can detain a suspect for six hours. Then you have to be charged with a crime or let go. And if charged, investigators get 72 hours to build a case that they can then arrest you on or they have to dismiss the charges. Very interesting. So both Sarah and Martin get charged and the investigation team immediately went to work trying to find any blood evidence anywhere in that room and they eventually did like they tore up all the wallpaper they tore up all the vinyl they completely stripped it and they found like one section of the floor it was oddly smooth so they started chipping away at it and they had found underneath that layer that was put over it there was an extremely absorbent porous material that had absorbed blood into it it wasn't a lot of blood, y'all. They did a good job cleaning up. I will give them that. And honestly, had Martin not confessed, I don't think they would have been caught. They did a good job burying him too. Like you could not find any shift in the dirt by looking at it. They had to use a special machine to locate the exact spot in the dirt so they didn't waste too much time excavating the body. 
And Gordon was exactly where Martin said he would be. Typically, there's a slight mound where her body is, but they had been two years and these people are farmers. Like, they know what they're doing. Gordon had actually been wrapped in a tarp and buried the same position he died in, laying down with his head turned, looking over. So sad. The trial was 12 days long. Sarah maintained her innocence and said that Martin was framing her for leaving him. Martin also maintained his innocence. Um, he's going with the shaggy defense. It, was, it wasn't me. Wasn't me. I don't know. It wasn't me. So apparently in Sweden, you can either get life in prison for murder or a maximum of 18 years. And the only way you can get life in prison is if the murder was like very heinous, caused prolonged pain and suffering and, you know, involving like beating, kidnapping, torture, stuff like that. That's the only way to get life in prison. They don't have the death penalty. So both Sarah and Martin got 18 years because his death was instant and they will be eligible for release in the summer of 2026. Martin's dad went bankrupt and Sarah was completely written out of everything um, because killers cannot inherit anything from their victims. Maria, she got it all. 50 million kronor, which is like 6 million US dollars. The new Mercedes, the houses, everything. Now, Sarah and Martin's son will be 13 when they are released. It is said that he spent a significant amount of time in foster care, which I find so sad. Martin and Sarah still claim their innocence. Man, they some messy people, y'all. They some messy people. All right. Thanks so much for tuning into Storytime Podcast. I'll talk to you next week. Bye.